Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sister Esther. Uh, one of the joys we have during the Advent season is we uh, rotate preachers across our Grace DC network. We are a, an extended family of three congregations, Grace Mosaic, Grace Downtown, and us, Grace Meridian Hill. And it's a joy today to uh, introduce our first preacher, first up at bat. Uh, lead off is Pastor Russ Whitfield, uh, the lead pastor of Grace Mosaic, and he is no stranger to this community, preached here a number of times, and uh, many of you know him personally. It's a joy always to receive, not only from his gifts, but also from his faith, and by faith, I mean a brother who has been tested and tried by the, the sufferings and vicissitudes of life. You've been through the ringer, I've walked with you through it, and God makes us bolder in faith and more courageous in love through trials like that. And so I'm grateful uh, for Russ's ministry, not only his words, but his life that he brings as a pastor, faithfully fa uh, pastoring his flock, all of us all together across the network. So thank you so much for being here, man. We're grateful to have you back. And let's all welcome Pastor Russ together. Thank you, Pastor Duke. Good morning, Grace Meridian Hill family. I'm so happy to be with y'all. It's always a joy to be able to get to see something of what God is doing across town. We're over in Northeast. It's exciting to see what God's doing over here in Northwest and how the Lord is blessing this community, growing y'all, stretching you, answering prayers, showing up in your lives, using you to bless your neighbors. And it's just a, it's a gift to be able to participate in encouraging you and uh, helping to equip you for that important work. Um, as Pastor Duke said, I'm first up to bat for our Advent series, and so I want to offer a brief word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Lord, you have proven all through the history of your church that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks, that you are not limited by our five loaves and two fish. You can bless them and multiply them to feed many. So, Lord, I pray that that would be the case this morning. I pray that you would turn the water of my study into wine. I pray that you would uh, draw straight lines with this crooked stick. Encourage your people. Help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. 
So we ask now, Lord, for an advent, that you would be with us now, and that you would open our hearts to hear marvelous things from your word. Things that will help us to live the life we have to live right now with the trials, challenges, heartaches, and fears that we have to face. So bless these, your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to mind when you hear the word comfort? What comes to mind for you? You got that in your head? For many modern people, this word conjures up a wide variety of images and experiences. We talk about comfort food and the satisfaction that can come from a plate of fried chicken, a bowl of gumbo, or some meatloaf and mashed potatoes. We use the language of comfort zone to describe when we're in a place of familiarity or security. We use the language of creature comforts to describe the material items that we feel like we need in order to be happy and content. Advertisers use what they call comfort advertising in order to sell a wide range of products. You can go down to the liquor store and get a bottle of Southern Comfort. <laughs> Pastor Duke said that a little too loud. He said, yep. <laughs> If you're traveling, you can stay in a Comfort Inn hotel. And when you get tired, when it's time to rest, you can cover up with a comforter. For many moderns, comfort is putting your feet up after a hard day of work, sipping on some wine, watching a fire crackle in a fireplace. According to popular notions of comfort, Comfort is what connects us to all that is warm, feel-good, nostalgic, and pleasing. And I say all this to make the point that the language that we witness in our culture around the theme of comfort actually reveals that we have some pretty shallow notions of comfort. We have a pretty thin account of comfort. And the reason why that's a problem is because when you have shallow versions and visions of comfort, it makes real comfort elusive. It makes it hard to get. The theme of comfort is all around us, and yet it always seems as if comfort is slipping through our fingers. Where do you turn for comfort? This Advent season, as Pastor Duke said, the Grace DC Network pastors are going to be preaching through a series in the book of Isaiah for our Advent series. And this is a beautiful chapter of Scripture that speaks to those who are living through the tensions and the trials and the difficulties of this world. Isaiah 40 speaks to those who are in need of comfort. And as we kick off our Advent series today, the prophet Isaiah gets us started with a word of comfort. And what we're going to see in this passage is that if real comfort is to come to us, if real comfort is going to come to us, then it must confront all that is wrong with life. Real comfort necessarily confronts all that is wrong and broken with life. The evil, 
the sadness, the suffering, the anxieties that stem from unexpected diagnoses, the tragic. So we're going to approach our text this morning through two points as we consider the message of comfort and the ministry of comfort. So let's look at our first point as we consider the message of comfort. We're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. And the prophets, their major ministry is that they were covenant mediators, which is to say their work was to help God's people to understand where they had departed from God's rule of life and and what they needed to do in order to return to that rule of life. Whenever a prophet would show up on the scene, typically what that meant is that Israel had messed up and the prophet was coming to let them know that they messed up and to call them back to God's rule of life. And this is precisely where Isaiah begins his engagement. Now check it out. Isaiah spends 39 chapters calling out the people's sins and their disobedience, their departure from the covenant. Their disobedience and their rebellion resulted in their exile from their homeland. The people of God were in a pit of despair. If they had any hope, that hope was hanging on by a thread. They were suffering tragedy. And they knew that everything they were going through, everything that they were suffering, everything that was happening to them was all their fault. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you had nobody else to blame? There was nowhere else to pin the responsibility. You had to simply own up to the fact that you are in the situation you're in because of what you did wrong. Maybe I'm the only one. But this is where God's people found themselves. However, after trudging through 39 chapters that largely consist of judgment and threat, the reader catches a ray of light piercing through the dark clouds of judgment as Isaiah begins his 40th chapter. God warns his people. And warning, some people make it out to to seem like God is just mean or callous or harsh. But I want you to think of God's warnings of judgment like this. It's like the sign on the road that says, bridge ends in a thousand feet. Now you can look at that sign and say, these Department of Transportation people can't judge me. I'm free. Who they think they are? Shoot, you keep on driving. (laughs) But you're going to wind up off a bridge, right? It's a similar way when it comes to God's warnings. He's saying, look, you're headed for disaster. Life apart from me is a disaster. There is no life out there. There's no joy out there. There's no satisfaction out there. There's no promise or hope out there. Come back home. That's what chapters 1 through 39 were about. And it sounds harsh when you read through it. But now the, the ray of light breaks through and God begins to boast out the good news that he holds for his people. 
Check it out in verse 1 of our text. Verse 1 says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Given what the people of God had done and who they had become, this is an absolutely stunning shift in the prophetic message. And this shift is even more stunning in light of the ancient cultural backdrop. Check this out. This is new for me. I, I discovered this in my research for this. In both the Jewish and pagan world, when it came to comfort, the expectation was that comfort would come to you from your family members or your neighbors. And, and if they weren't actually close to you in proximity, they would send letters of comfort to the disconsolate. And those letters, we have some of those letters from this period that still exist. And it gives us insight into the way that ancient people thought about comfort. And here's, here's what we learn. The letters that have survived from this period suggest that the normal message was, don't lament long. It, it was thought that, quote, lamenting is useless. And that people should set an example by mourning only for a short period. The disconsolate were encouraged to read philosophy or poetry. Sometimes they were encouraged to take up diversions like wine, song, or even riddles. Assurances of immortality, uh, of the, the peace of eternal nothingness, were sometimes given to people depending on the beliefs of the comforter. But here's the kicker, here's the kicker. When we search these ancient letters of comfort, what we learn is that hardly ever was prayer or uh, petition made to the gods. Comfort at this time was not regarded as a divine function. And no pagan deity was associated with the work of comforting their people. The idea of a God who comforts was virtually unknown in the ancient world. Now, do you see it? In the context of Israel's sin and rebellion, in the context where there is no other deity who claimed any desire or willingness to comfort their devotees, the Lord tells his messengers in the most emphatic language, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Do you notice the covenant language too? My people says your God. This is amazing because earlier in the first 39 chapters, God calls Israel those people because they were living like a people outside of the covenant. But now he turns the corner and he says, you might be living outside of the covenant. You may be living like those people, but I'm living inside of the covenant evermore and I'm still going to call you my people. It's no mistake, y'all, that Isaiah throughout his entire prophecy has this, this unique language for God in which he calls him the Holy One of Israel. To say that God is holy is to say that there is nobody like him. Nobody loves like he loves. Nobody cares like he cares. And nobody comforts like he comforts. Up until this point, Israel had tried to find comfort in all kinds.
kinds of other places. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. Or Wook and Penub, if you know about that. <laughs> if you read, I knew Crystal was going to help me out on that. If you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, along with Isaiah's uh, prophetic contemporaries, you can see that God's people had turned to idolatry and false gods, but they found no comfort. They turned to sexual encounters, but they found no comfort. They turned to riches, and they were willing to trample on the poor and to extract everything they could from the vulnerable, but still they found no comfort. And if none of these things worked to comfort them, then what makes us think that any of these things are going to comfort us? The Lord expresses his desire to comfort his people. But he also gives direction on the specific message that will actually comfort his people. If you look at verse 2, take a look at verse 2. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In this message, we can identify the central components of real comfort. Let's, let's pick this apart and just break out these different pieces and walk through it together. We start with speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, you know what's interesting? In the Hebrew text, it literally says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The first component of real comfort is that it must address the heart. And this is where our modern search for comfort often runs aground. We, we often try to address heart wounds with surface level treatments. At a, at a most basic level, if your treatment doesn't address the tangled mess within, it will not give you lasting comfort. It might give you a diversion, it might give you a temporary distraction, but it will not give you comfort. You know what that's like? That's like when you have a headache, you take an aspirin and you tape it to your forehead. That aspirin won't do you any good until it gets in you. And that is what Isaiah is showing to us. The, the, the comfort that we need is the comfort that speaks to the heart. And I want you to understand something with me. There is a difference between being comfortable and being comforted. It's a big difference. Being comfortable is about the manipulation of your circumstances or your environment. You can be comfortable when you wrap up with a warm blanket or you sit by a fireplace or you're drinking something nice, right? Like it's environmental, it's circumstantial. That's what being comfortable is all about. Being comforted is when God gets to your heart. It's when he gets beneath the surface. And, and what we know is that you can be comforted while everything around you is breaking loose. 
When hell is breaking loose around you, you can still have comfort. God is able to give you comfort even when you're not necessarily comfortable. We see here that real comfort speaks to the heart. We move on. And cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now, Israel had been surrounded by very big nations that were encroaching and squeezing them and ultimately through their fighting back and forth, through their warfare, they ended up being defeated and exiled. Defeated and exiled. Have you ever been on a long work trip and just had the feeling, oh, I can't wait to get home? Well, imagine that you were forcibly taken from your homeland, from your place, without any indication that you ever might return. This is the situation in which Israel finds themselves. This is something of the theme that we get in the story of the prodigal sons. When the younger son goes off into the far country. You see, what we learn is that exile is not just a physical estrangement from your homeland, from your place. It actually goes beyond that. And it, and it actually is reflected in our estrangement from God. Just like the younger brother. He, he wanted to be free from the father's constraints. He wanted to take his inheritance. He wanted to go out and have a good time. And he winds up in the far country, desolate. He's self-exiled through his selfish pursuit of pleasure. And his longing to live life on his own, free from his father's rule. And I can't think of a more perfect description of modern people than this younger brother. Because we, too, want to pursue our pleasures in utter autonomy. We have lived with the mistaken notion that we're always inevitably making progress without reference to God. But here's the deal. All of the social scientific data and just looking at the daily news identifies the fact that we're not inevitably making progress all the time. That our Promethean ambitions are actually sucking the life out of us. The vitality, it's crushing us. This life away from God, apart from God, this life in the far country is a devastating life. It's all taking from you and no giving. We are exiled from our true home. But we see here that real comfort calls us out of exile. We keep moving and see that the text says, and cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned. Now this is a, a jaw-dropping message in light of what we've just discussed about what Israel has done and who Israel has become. The people were absolutely loaded down with sin. And this was the entire reason that they were in this bad situation in the first place. But over all of the sin, over all of the failure, over all of the missteps, misdeeds, and mistakes, the Lord speaks a word of pardon. In our modern age, 
we wrestle with guilt and shame quite a bit, don't we? Now, shame might appear to be more pronounced in our modern context, but the reality is that we still bear a lot of guilt within. And the truth is that there's really nothing we can't be guilty about. We can be guilty about food, whether we ate too much or we took that late night trip to shame eat McDonald's, <laughs> guilt eating. I don't feel guilty because I'm the Lord's free man. But some people, <laughs> some people feel guilty on something as simple as food. But it's not, it's not just food. Money makes us feel guilty. How much we make, how much we give or don't give, what we buy or don't buy, money can make us feel guilty. Relationships can make us feel guilty. When we say the wrong things to our friends, and then we avoid those friends because we don't want to be faced with our failure. When we don't call, when we don't answer the text and check in on people, when we forget important dates on the calendar or anniversaries, we feel guilty. Our spirituality makes us feel guilty. Whether we're not performing up to our own spirituality, it doesn't matter what your spirituality may be. Our spirituality makes us feel guilty because of our bad performance. When we don't show up the way we're supposed to show up, when we're absent-minded about our faith, when we fail to live up to our standards, when we get caught in hypocrisy, we feel guilty. What we see here is that real comfort, it must address our guilt, not by stuffing it or pretending it's not there or, or, or burying our guilt, but by pardoning the sin that made us guilty in the first place. That's what real comfort does. We move on. The text says, and cry to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a way of saying that the just judgment that has fallen upon God's people is completed. The judgment is over. The judgment is satisfied. There is no more divine judgment hanging over them. And what's interesting about modern people is that we really have no tolerance for judgment from our peers, do we? You can't judge me. We will cancel people who are judgmental in a heartbeat. However, what many modern people fail to connect the dots, many, many modern people fail to connect the dots. If we have a hard time dealing with judgment from our peers, if we have a hard time receiving the, the judgment of people on social media, what do we think it's going to be like to experience judgment before a holy and righteous God who sees everything we do, knows everything we've said, knows all of our weaknesses and our faults? It is a most discomforting thought that I will be held accountable by God 
for the life that I live. And this is one of those themes of Advent. Jesus is coming again. And what we learn in the creed is that he will return to judge the living and the dead. Real comfort has to speak into the reality that we face under the threat of judgment. Real comfort is able to set us free from the weight of God's judgment. It lifts the crushing weight that hangs over our lives. God's message of comfort hits home like no one and nothing else can because it speaks to the heart. It calls us out of exile. It addresses our guilt and it lifts the just judgment that hangs over our lives. If any of these four components is missing, the thing that you call comfort is merely an illusion. There is no real comfort. You're still dealing at the surface level, and you will continue to find diversions and distractions to temporarily get your mind off of the things that bring discomfort rather than actually getting to the heart level matters. Because the reality is that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. We need to hear the message of comfort. But here's the question. How do you and I get real comfort? Where does real comfort come from for us? The answer to this question is always and ever the gospel. The gospel. In his first advent, Jesus Christ came into the world not just as a messenger in the style of Isaiah, but as the Messiah, the king who could affect the comfort that he proclaimed over his people. He couldn't just talk a good game. He could actually bring to pass what he called out over his people. Jesus is able to give real comfort because he speaks to our hearts. Everything our heart has ever longed for is found in him, and he freely gives himself to us. Jesus calls us out of exile just as powerfully as he called Lazarus out of the grave. What can comfort you more than the thought that Jesus knew all of the things that you would ever do, all of your failures, all of your sins and faults, and yet still love you, still came for you, still abides with you, he still fights for you, and he even lives to pray for you. Finally, Jesus is able to make his comfort real to us because he lifts the just judgment that hangs over our lives. He lifts the judgment by absorbing it for us. In fact, Isaiah says just a few chapters later in his prophecy, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Nothing and no one else can comfort like Jesus. And when Jesus comforts you, then he gives you the ministry of comfort, which brings us to our second point, the ministry of comfort. 
If you look at verses 3 through 5, if you would, take a look at the text with me. The text says this. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. On the very first page of Mark's gospel, the evangelist quotes this verse and he applies it to the ministry of John the baptizer. John engaged the people of his place in order to prepare them for the arrival of Jesus. And what I would suggest to you is this. Though John occupies a unique place in redemptive history, his ministry is one that is given to every Christian. We too are to cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. In Isaiah's context, we have this dual image that's at work. Not only of a highway that is made for God to come to his people, but it's that same highway by which God comes to his people and then leads them out of their exile. This is the ministry that we have been given by God, family. We are called to prepare the way for the Lord. But how do we do that? What does it look like to prepare the way for the Lord? First thing I would encourage you to do is start with yourself. Start with yourself and begin with repentance. How did John the baptizer prepare the way for the Lord? He called the people of his day to repentance, to naming all of the things that were wrong in their hearts, wrong in their lives, wrong in their neighborhoods, wrong with the society, broken about relationships, broken about marriages, broken about parenting, broken about dealing with your roommates. Everything that is wrong and sad and discouraging is to be named. Because you will not resist a thing until you name it. Begin with repentance. Next, I want to encourage you to tell the truth about your wilderness trials. I think it's a sad thing when God's people pretend and when they're asked, how are you doing? They say, I'm good. When they're not good. You know why that's a problem? There are a number of reasons why that's a problem. The first reason, reason why that's a problem is because when you conceal what's really going on, you rob the Lord of all of his glory. Because when he delivers you, people don't even know that anything was wrong and that the Lord saw you through. And chances are, they're suffering similar things and they need the encouragement and the reminder that what God did for you, he can do for them. You got to tell the truth. This is part of what it means to be a community. This is one of the most beautiful things about this community. That you don't have to have it all figured out. Your life can be a hot mess. You can be confused. You can be all discombobulated about your career and your relationships. And you can name it honestly and still be loved. Advent is a time for you to name it 
to be honest about what's going on. The next thing I want to encourage you to do to prepare the way for the Lord is to resist busyness. Resist busyness because a lot of times we are so busy that we don't slow down enough to actually understand that there are real things going on in our lives that we need to address. Real things going on in our lives that we need to share with our brothers and sisters who love us and who are for us. We need grace to slow down and resist the busyness so that we can prepare the way for the Lord. We need to get in the word and meditate on the word, digesting the truths of our faith, the story of Scripture, what God has done in the history of the church, global and historic. We need to, we need to pray. We need to pray. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work, says Oswald Chambers. Finally, I want to encourage you, one of the ways that you can prepare the way for the Lord, sing. Sing to the Lord. During your week, we're getting ready for work in the shower. Let your heart be refreshed as you lift your heart to him being reminded that his promises are true, that he is for you and not against you, and that one day he is going to come again and he's going to make it all right. No matter what you're facing, no matter what is on your plate, you can have utter confidence that your God is going to see you through. The old gospel song says this, I can't give up now. I've come too far from where I've started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy, but I don't believe he's brought me this far to leave me. That is true. That's gospel truth. Start with yourself. But then there is an opportunity for us to prepare the way for the Lord in the way that we engage our neighbors. We prepare the way for the Lord by showing up in the lives of our neighbors, communicating our interest, bringing our curiosity, being good listeners, and remembering when they share important things with you so that you can follow up with them and let them know that even if nobody else remembered and no one else paid attention and no one else cared, you did. And even more, you have an opportunity to let them know that the God of heaven does. That he sees them. He's the God who sees. And he knows. And he is near to the brokenhearted. His word says that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Our neighbors need to hear that. And you have the opportunity to prepare the way for the Lord. We prepare the way for the Lord by speaking up. The ministry of comfort is the ministry of truth-telling. And these are trying days to be a community that tells the truth. Because so many people are trying to curry favor and they're trying to posture on politics. And they are trying to, to gain favor with people who are losing their minds. And we have to be a courageous 
community of truth-tellers to share what the Christian faith is all about, to speak for the Lord when he is being misrepresented, particularly by Christians. Even though we love them, we have a heart to be true to what the word teaches and our relationship and our responsibility toward our neighbors to let them know that this doesn't represent the heart of the kingdom of God. Looking for power and trying to basically separate people on some nationalism in, in, in hopes that all kinds of people will just be different and people who are different will never be together and we all go our separate ways. We got we to gotta hold out the truth that we're headed for every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together as the people of God where no one stands above the other. No one thinks themselves more righteous than the other. On that day, when we stand in that complete joy and glory, no one will fail to be astonished that they actually made it in. And you're going to be looking at people and be like, how'd they make it in? And they're going to be looking at you saying, how'd he make it in? And we're all going to be blown away at the great mercies of God and Jesus Christ. Let us be a truth-telling community, speaking up. We prepare the way for the Lord by preparing our tables for our neighbors in hospitality. It's important for us to understand that the ministry of comfort is also the ministry of hospitality. And I think that hospitality is really the cutting edge of mission. It's an opportunity for us as a people that comes to this table every day to be shaped and formed by what we do at this table so that we will have hearts to invite people to our tables. And maybe, just maybe, if we begin to make room for our neighbors to join us at our tables at our house, maybe, just maybe, they will join us one day at this table by faith in Christ. In an age where people are building higher walls, we should be the kind of community that is building longer tables. This is one of the ways that we can prepare the way for the Lord. We prepare the way for the Lord by doing all the good we can, by all the means we can, in all the ways we can, in all the places we can, at all the times we can, to all the people we can, for as long as we can, according to Wesley. We prepare the way for the Lord by sharing our testimony concerning the ways that the gospel has given us comfort in our lives. You don't have to be afraid to share what God has done for you. Has he brought you over some mountains? Has he seen you through some valleys? Has he carried you through many trials and dangers, toils and snares? Share what God has done and let your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends know when you have the opportunity that God can do the same for them. The gospel redefines our whole way of thinking about comfort. On this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's people know that comfort food is found at the Lord's table. We know that the only real comfort zone 
is being in Christ. We know that creature comfort can only come from the, the creature's creator. We see the preaching of the gospel as real comfort advertising. And you might be able to get some southern comfort on the corner, but Jesus is bringing global comfort at his second coming. And on that day of his return, Jesus will book our permanent stay in the real comfort in the kingdom of God. And if you want to rest from your pretending and performing, you can cover up with the righteousness of this comforter. The glory of the Lord has been revealed. So let us join the Apostle Paul in blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you comfort your people, that you are such a God who would bear with us, who would endure our failures and our faults and our sins, that you would love us so. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends, our neighbors in here this morning. I pray that you would draw near to them and give them your comfort. Let them know, Lord, that according to your promise, you are able to comfort them even when life is not comfortable. I pray that you would be near. I pray that you would remind them that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing separate us from your love. Lord, we ask that during this Advent season, we would remember what it means to be comforted by Jesus in the gospel, and that you would give us gladness in due time. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. If you would take care of the birds, if you would clothe the lilies, is it not true that we are much more valuable? Help us to remember these truths and help us to face the things ahead of us without any fear because our lives are in the hands of the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who has given us redemption hope, and a future. So meet your people during this Advent season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.